Hey folks, this is Bruce Hutchin, founder and CEO and main uh, camp washer upper for Hutch on Hunting. And I'm really happy today to have a good friend. We've known each other for a long time and she was on my previous podcast and Lindsay Persico, AKA Eagle Feather, AKA Hunt Fiber. She's a woman, woman in the outdoors. And we're going to get into what all that means, but Lindsay, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and sharing your stories and reaching out. And we're going to talk about why women need to go and challenge themselves, not only in Alaska, but it could be just going to the gym or doing something different, get out of their comfort zones. Cause you certainly are one woman in the United States of America that has definitely pushed her comfort zone. And I think of the TV show that you were on, uh, The Beast. And let's just start off with that. How the heck did you ever get ramrodded into doing that TV show? <laughs> well, thanks for having me on, Bruce. It is always exciting to chat with you. We have been friends for so long. Um, Alone the Beast was something that popped up randomly. I had the folks from Alone reach out and see if I'd be interested in doing the original Alone show. But I have, I mean, at this point now I have four kiddos and I can't leave them for that long. There's just too many logistics in play. And so they asked if I would be interested in doing their spinoff show called The Beast. And it was only a 30 day challenge. So it was a little bit more feasible for me time wise. And when it popped up at first, I was like, I've never really wanted to be on a reality TV show. It's not something that I've wanted to do, but it seemed like a really good opportunity to help get the word out for the things that I'm passionate about. It helped me, it would help me expand my reach and it would be an opportunity for me to test myself and have a challenge and an adventure someplace that I've never been. And it's really difficult for me to turn down the opportunity to go someplace in the wilderness that I've never been because I love to see new places. So I ended up deciding to do it and I'm glad that I did. So how did it all turn out? Well, it ended up being the the difference between this show, The Beast and the original alone is that instead of being put out alone, you're put out with a team. So each I had three people on my team. There were multiple different teams. And the goal was for you to last 30 days. If you lasted 30 days, you had successfully completed yours, your show. And I ended up alone after all, because the first person on my team quit on day three and the second person quit on day eight. So I ended up being by myself for the majority of the time that I was out there, but I was able to complete it. I was successful in it. Um, <laughs> it was a challenge, but at the same time, it was also just a really cool experience. And I look back on it and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about that area that I was in, in the great slave lake um, region of the Northwest Territories. And I look back on it kind of with pride. It was something that I was able to accomplish and come home and feel really good about. Now, did you catch a lot of fish and eat a lot of fish? 
No, I didn't. I had a moose that was my primary food source while I was there. So you were able to harvest the moose and then break it down and no. So the way that this show worked, the, the reason they called it the beast was because instead of like on a, the regular alone show, you pick 10 different tools or things that you want to bring with you to help you as you're trying to survive. This show was very primitive based. Everything had to be done using primitive homemade tools from what you could find in the landscape around you. So we weren't given anything but the clothes on our back and we weren't allowed to use any of the clothing on our back to create a tool. Everything had to be created from the land. And so in order for them to give us something, since they weren't giving us tools, they gave us a dead animal and they used the local tribes to harvest that animal. And then we were able to utilize it for food and for tool making and those types of things. Wow. So you had a moose with all the parts. I mean, we're talking, you can make glue, you can make bow and arrow, you can make clothes, you can make shelter. I mean, you can make spoons and knives and forks and you got the marrow to eat. You got plenty of meat to eat. Wow. Yeah. You just have so no tools to use to break it down. Zero. Um yeah. So I was hoping to have really good rock there that I could nap to get a sharp stone for butchering, but all they had available was a granite and a slate. And so I ended up having to butcher the entire moose with a slate piece of rock and it took me forever. <laughs> Hours, days. Yeah. Yep. Yes, sir. It was a very it was a very difficult challenge due to the zero tools on hand to use. Yeah. So tell me about shelter, though. What did you do for shelter? Build a wiki up or something like that? So for the first bit of time, I used like a tree well um, and then broke boughs from other spruce trees to create a shelter. And it worked pretty well until the snows hit. When the snows hit and they would gather on the top of the shelter, it would slowly melt and drip into the shelter. So at that point, I created a frame inside and I used the moose hide over the frame to create a waterproof area in that shelter for me to sleep in. So that worked out pretty good. It did. Yeah, it worked really well. And I really liked that setup. I had a smoker setup that I was smoking the moose meat on. I had a great fire pit area. I had a pretty good shelter and I was pretty comfortable there. Um, and then a bear came and would no. not. No. Yeah, I had to move my camp because of a bear um, that I he kept getting more and more comfortable and coming closer and closer. And one night I woke up because I would have to keep my fire going. And I looked up and my fire was getting low. And on the other side of it, just sitting just on the other side of it was that bear laying there chewing on my fat pile that I had gathered from the moose. And he didn't care that I was there. He was kind of starting to take it over as his own area. And so I ended up having to pick up my camp and move a couple miles and then reset up camp. So that was an interesting part of the so process. Was it a big boar or was it a sow? It was a pretty good sized bear, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't huge or anything, but he wasn't a small black bear. Yeah. Interesting. Could you yeah. journal? Did they give you journals so you could journal the whole thing? No, no, we didn't have anything but the clothes on our backs. That's all but we had. Obviously, you had a photographer, videographer, so he was I, filming the whole thing. 
Well, that we did a combination of self-filming. So we would have cameras that we had to use to film for if nobody was around. And then some days throughout the week, a camera crew would come out and they would get certain shots that they needed or they would interview me and ask questions about how the experience was going. Um, so they would be there intermittently and get the shots they needed and then they would head back. And the rest of it was self-filmed by me. Now, did you have a sat phone just in case? No, I did not. So if things went south, oh, well. <laughs> they would stop through and check in on people pretty regularly. So it's similar with the regular alone show. There would be people checking in to make sure that you were still there and that nothing had gone south that way. Yeah, that's, you know, my time in the bush in Alaska and different parts, provinces of Canada, it's kind of. You're all alone. And even though you have a partner, I remember one time we were up there in Alaska, 10 day hunt, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I looked at my buddy and he was well qualified. I mean, he could do those alone hunts. I mean, he was super well qualified. And I'm saying, nothing better happen to you because if something happens to you, I'm your only out. <laughs> he laughed. Yeah. He laughed. Well, and for me personally, on all of my hunts and trips that I go on, I carry a Garmin in reach because it, if you're hunting by yourself and something happens, you, you really need a way to get a hold of emergency services or at least get a hold of family or something like that because you can get yourself in a real pickle real quick. And then if you don't have any way of getting in contact with the outside world, you're not getting any help. So, hey, here's a new thing that I just found out. I just came back from a nice six day fishing trip. And one of my friends used Zolo, Z-O-L-E-O. -E and it's a satellite communication tool that's free. Oh, that's cool. And they use it all the time on the boat so they can communicate with home or friends or whatever. And so it just goes off satellite. Well, that's neat. Yeah, that's how my Garmin inReach is. It's based off satellite. So Right. But check that out because I didn't know about it until my friends would see their Texan. I'm going, hey, we're 200 miles out of San Diego. There isn't any Wi-Fi. There isn't any signal out here. Said, no, this is all, all satellite and it's free. Now, you can embellish it and get, you know, better stuff. But, hey, folks, if you haven't checked that out, Z-O-L-E-O. -E it's an app goes on your smartphone and uh, might get you out of a jam sometime. That's yeah. enough commercial shout out for Zolo. That's a free one. <laughs> so you grew up in Idaho. You live in Montana. You've always been a hunter mm -hmm. or a gatherer. You've been an adventure lady. I can remember one time you were going on a, wolf hunt and we kind of chit chatted back and forth and how that was going to go because you do you know you hunt solo so what is it in your genetic makeup your personal makeup your female makeup your gender makeup that wants to put yourself out there as a huntress when i'm out there that's when i feel fully alive um i've always said that we are only here because our ancestors were successful hunters. 
if it was not for successful hunting ancestors, none of us would be here. And I think that I was blessed to be exposed to hunting from a young age. My dad um, took me out and introduced me to it, but he did it in a way where it wasn't all about necessarily filling the tag and getting the animal. That was a huge bonus. And we loved that because we used the meat, but it was about the experience and immersing me in the outdoors and showing me the wonder of what it is to be out there. And I fell in love with it. And I think that now, you know, in our busy, fast paced lives, that is truly where I feel at peace and alive. And I, I think more people, if they were exposed to it, would totally understand what I'm saying. It's a, there's something special about getting in the outdoors, being by yourself. It forces you to sit with your thoughts. It forces you to sit with yourself. And we don't have that very often in today's day and age. There's too many distractions and we don't have to sit with who we are and, you know, what our place is in the world and what our role is in it. I can't wait till you start writing books. <laughs> well, someday maybe. <laughs> no, no, no. Because you got so much there. I mean, just the experiences you have up with uh, Tana Grandy. Did I say it right? Grenda. Tana Grenda. And Bristol Bay. And you're one of the coaches up there with her. And tell me about that experience for the women who come to that camp. Our retreats are really cool. They they are something that is kind of unique in the outdoor world because they are focused on women and they're run by women. And what is really cool about that is that a lot of times in the outdoor world, women feel intimidated anyway, because it's not necessarily something that they're familiar with. It's often a male dominated space. And then when you're learning from male instructors, even if they have the best intentions, it can be a more intimidating experience for women to have a male teaching them. And so if they can let down their guard and they're surrounded by women who are um, just encouraging them and excited about the fact that they're interested in it and we take the time to sit down and teach them, a lot of times they're able to truly relax and open up. And not only do they learn a lot about the outdoors and they gain confidence while they're gaining skills and they make awesome memories, but a lot of times it actually helps people to, to let down their guard and start to open up about some of their more personal things going on in their lives. And it enables them to kind of get a break and get a reset, a mental reset. Um, there's so many positive things that happen there. It's one of my favorite things that I do all year. I look forward to it more than anything else. Last year, folks, you're out in the wilderness, someplace up in Alaska, and all of a sudden, there's a there's this video clip that comes on, and there's a there's a super cub coming down this lake, and all of a sudden, the banks, and all of a sudden, these pizza boxes drop out. <laughs> that must have been an expensive pizza delivery. <laughs> yeah, the gas alone for that pizza delivery. <laughs> Yeah, we always take our girls out on a pretty substantial hike. So we teach them how to pack their backpacks for a backcountry bush hike. And then we hike to some destination, whether it's a waterfall or a lake. 
um, something with a really cool view. And it's usually a pretty intense hike. And by the time you get back at the end of the day, everybody's pretty exhausted. And that's generally when Adam Grenda will fly over and give us a pizza drop. And it's the most, it's the best tasting pizza you're ever going to get just because <laughs> you're in and what you've done that day. Oh, yeah. And I always remember that. I go, yeah, that's, I hope the ladies sure give you a good tip for that. That's for sure. <laughs> They're all pretty excited about the pizza drop because they don't know that it's happening. It's usually a surprise. So. Well, they hear the plane come and they go, what's going on? And <laughs> then you make the drop. You know, when you talk about the retreats, talk about um, how people, if they're interested in that, can, can get a hold of you or Tana and sign up for it. Well, Tana actually has a website, bristolbayretreats.com, and that's where you can get your that basically it's ran like you put a deposit down and then the remainder of the purchase price is due by a certain date. So you can go in and reserve your spot basically and make sure that it's going to be available for you at the retreat that you want. We only are running two retreats each summer at this point and they do fill up pretty quick. So we recommend if it's something that you want to do, you get in there and get your spot reserved pretty quick. Um, we haven't had any issue filling them so far and it's been pretty, pretty fun. We make lifelong friends on these retreats. Um, I'm sure you do. What's the price point? You know, I'd retreat? have to look at the website because this year we're doing it a little bit differently. It's a pretty expensive trip just because of all the flights that are involved. Air, um, bush plane flights are not a cheap thing. So, uh, it does cost quite a bit but this year we're doing two different kinds so one we're calling it like the bougie bush experience um and that one has a special stay at alaska rainbow lodge which is an incredible place we went to this year with one of our retreats and so you get the bush experience and the lodge experience both and then there's one for a uh cheaper price point that doesn't include the lodge experience to try to make it more available for other women as well, who might not be able to spend as much as it costs to get to the rainbow Alaska rainbow lodge. So we have those two options, but I don't know off the top of my head, what she ended up pricing those two different retreats at right now. And so what's the website? Where would they go to find that? Bristolbayretreats.com. That's it. Now, if somebody ever has any questions or wants to get some coaching from you, how do they do that? Well, there's um, a link on my Instagram that they could go to. I also have a link on my website as well, huntfiber.com. And you can find me on Instagram at huntfiber as well. If you go to my bio, um, my link tree has a link for coaching. And basically you fill out a type form. It's going to ask some basic questions just so I can get a little bit of an idea of what you're looking for and why you're there. But then I do a deep dive with my clients. So when I work with someone, we're not doing very basic coaching. It is in-depth, personalized coaching focused on optimal metabolism, optimal hormones, dealing with some really more in-depth, detailed parts of coaching. I'm not a I don't just slap people on a simple workout program that I have everybody else on. My programs are really custom and designed to fit each individual needs. I work with a lot of people with autoimmune conditions, anywhere from autoimmune conditions to somebody prepping for a goat hunt that just needs help learning how to 
building the strength they need to climb a mountain. <laughs> I work with, with all types. So it's pretty fun. I do enjoy it. Good for you. And what's the price point of that typically? It really depends. Team? I have a couple different, usually I, I work long-term with people. So I start out with a six month program as a baseline. And then we go from there, depending if they need continued coaching on from their on or they're ready to go on their own. Um, but we can kind of do it in two different ways. They can do a weekly check-in with me where we're, it's a lot more hands-on and I'm helping them week by week. We go through how they're, how they're doing with their sleep, their stress, their workouts, their water and how they're feeling. And then I have more of a monthly based um, program where I check in with them once a month. And so it's a little more hands off. They're a little bit more on their own, but then we touch base each month and come up with goals for the next month ahead. And so that one, the monthly check-in is about a $350 a month program. And the weekly check-in program can range anywhere from $550 to $650 a month, depending upon how we do our check-in process. So there's, I can check in with somebody on a phone call, or I can record a video walking them through their stats, their food logs, their workouts, and things from the week. And that one runs a little bit cheaper than the phone call. Yeah, and from personal experience with my relationship with Lindsay, this lady has a wealth of knowledge about a lot of different issues and she can help you understand who you are, what you need to accomplish, set your goals and be there for you. Cause she's one of the people, if you followed her on Instagram for the amount of time I have and the others, she's real. And once she gets off on the, her writing, John, I, I don't know how else to say it, what word, but you'll see how profound she is in explaining who she is, her emotions, her feelings. And it's a beautiful thing. It's truly a beautiful thing that she has grown into this woman that has so much to share. And I, I'm so excited to see you're just getting started and I'm just so excited to see where this whole thing's going to go thank, for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, well deserved. I, I have been super blessed with everything that I've been able to experience. And yeah, I just keep, I keep taking advantage of the opportunities that arise and it's taken me to some pretty cool places. Yes, it has. Hey, when I wrote, uh, to you asking to be on the show and I asked your three major concerns about the challenges of hunting the hunting tradition to you and you came up with three of them predator management access to public lands and the lack of understanding in the general public population of what a hunter is what a huntress is so let's let's Spend some time on those those three things now. So predator management, why is that important in a conflict with a lot of people, but a necessary management tool for our fish and game people? Yeah, it's, you know, especially here out West where they're reintroducing wolves and the grizzly bear populations are expanding. Um these animals eat ungulates. That's what they do. And, and that's great. That's a part of the ecosystem. And they're, I believe that they are supposed to be there. And I think that they have a role, 
The problem is when we have an overabundance of predators and they're not being efficiently managed or managed at all, and they're allowed to just take over, then we're going to see a, a huge decrease in the ungulates. And that's what we use for food. And it's it's difficult. On, this kind of ties into that sec that last one that I stated where you know, people are so disconnected from where their food comes from and they don't understand because they're not immersed in it and they're not around it. They get um, information from sources that's inaccurate. And so they view predator hunting as this evil thing and they don't understand the whys behind why we do it. And and even to the fact of if they could understand, you know, we we need to keep these these populations in check so that we have ungulates to hunt, they couldn't even understand that because hunting in and of itself isn't appreciated and understood. So for them to get to the point where they understand predator management and can get behind it, it seems so far. It seems so far for them to go to get to that point where they could understand that. And that's, that's concerning for me because there's so many people making laws and pushing agendas that just have zero understanding of what's going on for those people that actually live out here and live off the land. And one thing that I've seen a lot of most recently in my feeds is that grizzly bears in Idaho, Montana, Yellowstone, Wyoming um, have become more aggressive. Mm-hmm. and attacks are happening more now my opinion for what it's worth imo is that because we don't hunt grizzly bears they're allowed to have twins and they have recruitment and boars kids so the mother has to disperse she can't stay where she made it she has to get out of that basin that area and take her kids some other place or they're going to be eaten Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden we have a dispersal of grizzly bears into habitats that haven't seen grizzly bears in a long time and because we can't hunt them and bc has atrocious regulations for grizzly bears, not for the management of grizzly bears. Mm -hmm. And it's getting to the point, if you have too many grizzly bears competing for food, guess what? We're food, folks. If you're listening to this show, we, human beings, are food. Yes, we have weapons and we can defend ourselves and Elk and deer and cattle and sheep, they have weapons, but they can't defeat a grizzly bear. No, nor can we in most circumstances if a bear wants to, you know, it just depends. You may may come out on top, you may not. (laughs) That's right. And I know you travel with a sidearm. I travel with a sidearm. I've been in the Sulphur River nine feet from trusting grizzly bear and by the grace of god he never touched me yeah that nine feet folks and my guy did have a pistol and we deterred it we didn't shoot it we deterred it from mixing it up with us but 
there's more and more stories of a guy with a sidearm and protecting himself or getting mauled. And something has to be done because more and more people are going to die. Yeah, I think a couple things are at play. I think the populations are healthy. They've expanded and exploded. And that's, you know, what their goal was. But in turn, it causes there to be more interactions between hunters and bears. So the more interactions we have, the more attacks are going to happen. And the area I was elk hunting in just last weekend, weekend before last, is incredibly high grizzly bear population area. There's already been three attacks on hunters this year alone. And everywhere you look, there's grizzly bear prints. They're everywhere. And you know, as soon as you shoot an animal, it becomes a bait basically for the bears. So your, your odds of running into a grizzly bear, if you shoot something, go up so much higher, <laughs> which is why you're out there. You're there to get some meat, but it takes a while to pack an elk out. So the, the odds you're going to run into a bear after you've shot an elk are pretty high there. And it is interesting to put on a mindset of not, you know, will I see a bear or not? It's if I get attacked, what am I going to do? Do I have the tools I need to hopefully survive a grizzly bear attack? You don't really want to go out there alone in those areas. It's just, it's not really safe to be out there by yourself. No, and fly fishing up in the Gallatin and the upper Absarokas, um, I carried a my pistol when I was fly fishing. And it has yep. signs in the trailhead. Be aware you are in bear area. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have for our food differently. Um, you just have to think about things in a completely different way when you're in a, a heavily populated grizzly bear area. And you keep your head on a swivel and you look at the landscape. And when it starts to funnel you into a canyon, it's like, okay, I'm a little more at risk in this area. <laughs> you know, you can't see very far. You could come around the corner and there could be a mama with two, you know, little cubs. And yeah, it it's a it's an entirely different beast. So let's talk about and wrap up the show and access to public lands. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we are really blessed here in Montana to have large parcels of public land that we can access. But one of the things I've seen, not, not just for here, but in other parts of our country is more and more people are trying to close down public lands and, and the access is being limited. And then not only that, we are seeing an influx of hunters. It seems like hunting has increased. Um, and I know for us here in the Western states, especially Montana and Idaho, places like that, populations have increased. A lot of people have moved here. And a lot of people have moved here because of all the outdoor opportunities that these states provide. But in turn, it causes such an increase on the amount of people on these public lands, which makes hunting them a lot less successful. So those, those things, those are just factors that complicate it and change it from the way that it used to be. And I think figuring out how to work with these changes and make these places safe and still successful places to hunt is, is important. I don't know how we do that, but I think keeping that on the forefront and considering the options that are available to us with this is important, whether it's limiting the amount of, of people that are on these lands or, you know, However, we have to do it to make these lands still successful hunting places. It's just starting to get more and more difficult to find public land to hunt on and then to find public land that's not just completely covered with people. One thing, and I'm going to circle back, is 
you hunt for food. This mm -hmm. is not a sport activity. Yeah, you've killed some big elk, small elk, small deer, big deer, mountain goat, but you're hunting for food. That's field to plate, folks. Lindsay's food for her family comes from the wilderness. She buys a tag, she goes out and harvests it, breaks it down, wraps it up, and has elk chili all winter long. And so many people don't understand that. And that comes to the, your third point of people, they just think they go and buy something that's red wrapped in a mat, in a in a plastic wrapper, and that's food. Sort of, kind of. Not really good for you, in my opinion, but it's food. The most highest organic, rich protein food you can get, no antibiotics, nothing, is wild game. Could mm -hmm. be a pheasant, could be a duck, could be a goose, could be a squirrel, could be a grouse, could be a rabbit. It doesn't have to be a majestic elk. Elk just feeds you a lot longer. But People come and say, I'm going to hunt. I'm going to get my food, buy a freezer, process it, wrap it, and eat it. And a large portion of the United States is understanding that. And that's why we're seeing growth in the West, because that's where the game is. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm working behind the scenes with some people here in Colorado to get right to fish and hunt as a statute in Colorado. There's 32 states that have that as a oh. statute. There's two states that have it in their constitution. Why do we need that? Because we need that to be protected because people, there are people in our government that don't want Lindsay and I to hunt, period. Yeah, whether they don't understand it, um, you know, people in government, people that are pushing agendas, you know, they either don't understand it or they don't like the freedom that it entails. And, you know, for us, it's a way of life. This is how we live. And I want my kids to be able to live this way of life. I want this to be able to be something that's passed down for generations and to be available for people. And if we don't protect it and educate people about it, and try to keep it alive, it'll disappear. It'll be gone. Mm -hmm. And that would be the detriment to my grandchildren, to your children's children, and a way of life. And once it's gone, folks, it's gone. Yeah, you don't get freedoms back. <laughs> no. No, and we agree wholeheartedly on that. You just, we don't get it. So how do you get involved? Join the Elk Foundation, the Sheep Foundation, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. There's a lot of places that you can make your vote count just by volunteering, just by raising your hand, just by seeing who in your state is a pro hunter. And then talk to them, communicate with these people and say, this is important to me. How many licenses do we sell? In Colorado, they sell almost 100,000 fishing licenses. Wow. So people care about fishing. Hunting, 
I think their budget for Colorado is $96 million. Well, that's still a that's lot. a lot of money <laughs> to, to run, to manage all the critters that we have, to manage the parks. You know, it, it's an incredible. And folks, if I got my numbers wrong, let me know at hutchonhunting at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out to me. And feel free to reach out to me at hutchonhunting.com and let me know what you think, because it's important that people like Lindsay and I help you understand the importance of the hunting tradition. Lindsay, final words? Thanks for having me. And I love that you're so active and continuing to follow your own passions too. And I appreciate you bringing me along for the ride. Well, you're a great friend and we ain't done yet. Hopefully we can share a campfire someday together down the road. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It'd be interesting. That's for darn sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much.